Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is John Lee. Hey, John. Hey, Nathan. We just met, right? Yes. We don't know each other, right? No, we don't. How do we know each other? How did we get connected with each other? Or did you just hop on a Zoom call and just spontaneously exist? Mm-hmm. I probably reached out to you on a podcaster's directory online. I've been reaching out to podcasters about my small business, but also wanted to have conversations around philosophy. So you responded, and here we are having our first conversation. Yes. Uh, What business do you have? I've got a side business making mobile apps for content creators like podcasters. So if you wanted an app for your show, we can do that at the most affordable price there is. Define affordable. 25 bucks a month is our starting plan. Wow, that is actually pretty good. How successful do you think you've been so far? Got about 45 clients. So we're still very small, still trying to grow, break even. But I think we'll get there by the end of this year. Okay. It's just a small side business I'm trying to grow up and have pay for itself and then continue to grow. If I might ask, aside from the growth of your business, how has God been working in your life as of late? Well, I just finished reading Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I don't know if you've heard of that book. It's It's on my reading list. Yes. Yeah. I highly recommend it. My father-in-law started reading it and sent me a copy. So we've been reading it together. He's not a Christian. I love the book. I think, yeah, I completely agree with the conclusion of the book. I don't think Viktor Frankl goes into the justification for why meaning slash purpose is so important for psychological health and surviving extremely difficult circumstances like he did in the concentration camps. He just asserts it and I agree with it, but he doesn't go into the justification for it. And I think man's search for meaning ends when he finds God. So that's kind of where my head's been at the past couple of days. Yeah. And I do see it as like, I think it's the primary need of the human being of the human spirit. And it's the lack of that that's causing a lot of psychological and mental illness difficulty in our modern societies. Or just also pseudo-idealization, right? What do you mean by pseudo-idealization? So like if you're not going to find meaning in a relationship with God or a pursuit of God, then you might find meaning in something like pursuit of social justice or even something as simple as teaching or Mm -hmm. your job or maybe just raising a family because I I think most people, okay, not most people, but some people on the secular end of things, they might say, well, you can't find meaning in an invisible man in the sky. You're going to be able to find meaning through what you create as your own meaning, essentially existentialism, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't think, well, I think everyone has to find meaning somewhere and they're looking for it and they're, they're living as if there is meaning in everything they're doing. If you lose meaning, then you become suicidal, you lose hope, and then it, it, you're pretty much going to deteriorate. So I do think the vast majority of people are living for someone or something. Viktor Frankl talks about that too, living for someone or something in the future. I think it's just a matter of how solid that purpose is, like how ontologically solid it is and i don't think that any other purpose besides that isn't rooted in god holds water in the end and ultimately disappoints us in the end it is an idol and in the end 
your idols don't forgive you. They crush you in the end and yeah, disappoint you in the end. So yeah, that's kind of where my head's been at. I think for myself, the way that God has been working in my life as of late, practically speaking, it sort of feels like I'm playing a game of spinning plates where I'm trying to get things running and trying to make sure that nothing crashes. Mm. So what's on my mind as of late, I just finished booking the last guest for this podcast after spending a lot of time and energy just trying to find new guests, you coming to me and asking to be on my show. That was a huge blessing as was other people who did the same. I interviewed someone last week who came to me and asked to be on my podcast. And I'm going to be interviewing another person next month. I'm planning on going down to Calgary, Alberta. I live in Canada and I'm planning on volunteering at a convention down there. Mm-hmm. It's one that I'm super excited to be a part of. I'm going to be part of a new team that I've never volunteered before. It's something that I think is going to be potentially a very great time, except that there's a lot of fear within, I guess, uh, the city, uh, especially the city that I live in, Edmonton, mm-hmm. about COVID and the Delta variant. And in spite of the fact that over 70% of our eligible population is fully vaccinated, people still don't feel safe. It doesn't really feel like we're returning back to normal. And in the case of other places around Canada, not specifically within Alberta, but British Columbia just announced that they were introducing a vaccine passport system. Mm, Okay which is supposed to be going on until the end of next January, which I don't believe will actually happen. But it's it's like stuff like that, where it's like, I see a lot of potential in the future. There are things that I'm really excited about, projects that I'm really looking forward to working on and events Mm -hmm. that I'm excited to be participating in, mixed in with this underlying sense of dread that, okay, something wrong is happening right now and it's partly our fault as a Mm. civilization but at the same time like what do I do how do I respond to this how do I express how I feel without just falling into absolute rage Um, (laughs) is that a risk of falling into absolute rage yeah, yeah like just despair rage wanting to just and go back to the way things were. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I wish that things were like the way they were back in 2019. And I say that as someone who knows that 2019 wasn't exactly the most ideal time to be alive in terms of social, political relations. But at the same time, it's much better than this. Yeah. Yeah. One of our friends, close friends is, I guess you can call her a socialist. She's very skeptical about the government, and she's also uh, a vaccine skeptic. So she hasn't gotten vaccinated. She recommended I read the book 1984, which I've never read before. So I, I picked that up yesterday from the Half Price Bookstore, and I'm reading through it now. It's just it's so much fun. I'm like in the first couple of pages. But maybe that's what you're thinking. Your head is kind of like in that direction. Maybe we're headed toward something like that, uh, a much more maybe authoritarian, limited freedom situation in society, and we're gonna. Yeah, it's just, it may be a different way of, of living and getting around, shopping. Yeah. That. yeah our freedoms are, are being eroded. 
depending on where you live, I hear that Florida is a fairly free place to be. Yeah, you know, I was talking to my wife about this recently because her her sister lives in South Korea and they're also very restrictive. Their lockdowns are very severe. They want to move to New Zealand and they've been trying to get a visa there for a while. I mean, they're not going to get one this year, but I was thinking and I was I told her, you know, I don't think I'd want to live anywhere else but America because I think America is the freest country in the world and this situation has almost proven it. I don't think in America the people aren't going to allow a situation like in Europe and maybe New Zealand or Australia where the government has such a heavy hand in the the daily lives of the people. And we did have lockdowns last year, but I don't know, I think there's going to be a lot of pushback if that were to come back into place this time around, especially with so many people already vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're well over well 50% fully vaccinated. But also, if you count the people that have already gotten it and gotten over it and have just natural immunity, I'm thinking it's probably well over 70%. There are counter arguments everywhere. The Delta variant is much more contagious. And they're saying you're going to need at least you know, close to 100% immunity to get that herd immunity going. You know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not that afraid of it. I'm not that scared about catching it. I'm fully vaccinated myself. But looking at the numbers myself, I think the risks are low. I mean, they're low, I think, for people under 60 years of age. And then those who are over 60, I think, should definitely be getting vaccinated. But I don't know. It seems to me the fear is disproportionate to the reality is what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking. And yeah, and I also feel really uncomfortable about the taking away of our freedoms, like daily kind of basic freedoms that I'm seeing in other parts of the world and hope that doesn't also come here. Yeah. At the very least, going back to the whole idea of how God has been working in my life, at the very least, this is helping me to become more reliant on God and just believing that no matter what happens, somehow I am going to be protected by him. Yeah. I think a lot of the fear, actually, our overreaction to this in the modern world is because we're so unaccustomed and unfamiliar with suffering and death. I think we're probably the only couple of generations of all human history that feel so removed from death. It's just not part of our daily lives. And so our reaction has been like a panic response. Whereas in, through most of human history and in most parts of the world, it's still a very real part of everyday life. So yeah, maybe that's part of it. We're just so uncomfortable with the thought of illness and death especially maybe that's part of the reason for the outsized panic and response from this. Yeah. And it's interesting to note because if you look at statistics for other causes of death, apparently something like smoking and lung cancer causes 7 million deaths a year. And we're looking at how many people have died of COVID over the last, what, 18 months now. And it's a little over half of that number. Yeah. People can look at, say, 4 million people who've died from COVID and say those were entirely preventable deaths. Like, why couldn't the government have done more to save these people? Why couldn't the general public have done more to save these people? But at the same time, I also don't really hear that same kind of outcry against people who are smokers. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's the exact same argument our friend makes. Where is the push for, like, healthy eating and being active and and all this 
I think there's a human bias toward like short-term danger as opposed to long-term danger. So like chronic illnesses, like heart disease and diabetes, these aren't going to kill you tomorrow, right? They're going to kill you in 20, 30 years. And these are like diseases of lifestyle, but an infection is an immediate thing. It can take you out much more quickly. So yeah, there is a bias, I think, in our minds to prioritize these short-term dangers. But the reality is the chronic illnesses kill far, far more people each year than, than these infectious diseases. Yeah. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I know there are infectious diseases today that kill far more people than COVID has killed. I mean, not to belittle anyone's death, but yeah, I mean, death is, it's a reality and it's happening all the time for all kinds of reasons. I think we're just so unfamiliar and uncomfortable with the amount of it that's happening. And so when, when we get hit by statistics, like the ones around COVID, it just scares people to death. I mean, no pun intended, it just scares them. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answer to that. Transitioning a little bit to the topic at hand that we agreed to discuss for this episode. Do you think that this whole fiasco that we're in, it was preordained not by mutual man-made conspiracy, but rather by divine fate? Do you think that this was something that God not just allowed, but also planned for? Hmm. I don't see a big difference between allowed and planned for. I do think that God is in control of everything. And even this is part of his plan. And he allowed it because it's part of his plan. Yeah. So I do think it's not outside of his control. Millions of people dying, many millions more running around acting like idiots. Society going to the brink of collapse. All of that is part of his plan. Yeah, I mean, I don't think God is responsible for it, but I do think it's part of his plan. So human beings, this, this is the free will argument, right? Human beings have free will, and we, we misuse it all the time. We've misused it throughout human history. So much of the suffering we're experiencing is our own doing. We're responsible for it. We're guilty of it. So in that sense, I don't think human beings are off the hook. At the same time, I think God is completely in control of even our mistakes and we call it sins, right? Even the sins of humanity are not outside the control of God. And he's leading and he's writing this story to the end. So he's the author of human history, of creation, and he's bringing the story to his desired end. All right. What from your own life has allowed you to draw that kind of conclusion? Like, are there any personal experiences of yours where, like, say, you made a number of stupid mistakes Maybe you even went ahead and you sinned and yet God was able to somehow take all of that stuff and bring it all together for something greater. I think so. We started the conversation saying like, we think of our lives as stories. And I think that's true. We can't help it. Everyone is doing this all the time. We're looking at our lives like a story and we're interpreting our past as part of a narrative. I don't think anyone can do otherwise. It's just, it's part of our design. Having said that, of course, yeah, I can look back at my life and see how things fit together. But it's not just me doing that. Everyone is doing that, right? And we can all see the mistakes we've made or, or supposed mistakes we've made in the past have turned out to open certain doors, have opened other opportunities and have led me to where I am today. So I can see how like my life has gone a certain way. I think everyone can do that. I think the reason I believe God is in control 
more than any personal experience is because I see in the narrative of Jesus' life that there was a whole bunch of sin going on around him and a whole bunch of suffering. And that God was certainly in control of Jesus' life and the course of his life and the events of his life leading up to the cross. And that to me is the example that I can look at to confirm that no matter what sin and suffering is going on in the world, that God can still be and is in control of that to bring about his desired good ends. So yeah, I think the cross is the best example of how God is in control, even in and through suffering and human sin. Okay. Uh, I think if I might make a counter argument to that, what would you say if someone were to be like, well, the reason why God was in control of someone like Jesus and his life is because Jesus was literally the chosen one. He had a particular destiny to fulfill. And if God was not in control of that, then Jesus wouldn't have gone ahead and fulfilled that destiny. And in the case of Jesus, he's probably one of the most important people who's ever lived. But in the case of, say, someone you pass by in the next aisle of a convenience store, like what kind of special destiny might they have? I think for that argument, I'd have to counter and just look at the other parts of the Bible. I mean, I believe the other parts of the Bible are God's word as well. And in the other parts of God's word, he talks about his sovereignty in very specific terms, knowing individuals while they're in the womb. I can't quote scripture, but I think it's all over the place that he is omniscient. He knows everything and he's all powerful. And so I think the God we believe in, if he has those attributes of omniscience and omnipotence, and he is all good, that it would follow from that, that he would be in control of everything, every detail. Okay. I think looking at it myself, one can make the argument that even the minor characters are important. Like there are, are characters that pop up throughout the Bible who have one-off appearances, but they make a tremendous impact for the rest of the narrative. And any people that Jesus heals in the New Testament immediately comes to mind you kind of get an indication that what happened to them, this is probably the most important moment that has happened in their lives. But afterwards, we don't really know how their story plays out. However, in contrast to that, I'm Pentecostal myself, and I feel like it's very much a tendency in Pentecostal circles to go around praying and prophesying for each other. And it feels like everyone has a special destiny mm. and cynical version of me just kind of looks at that and thinks to myself, okay, if you're going to go around and say that everyone is special, then how are you able to maintain that they still have this value that they're going to be doing something important in their lives? Yeah, I guess it depends on what you mean by special. You talked about Jesus's life and how he loved children. He healed kids and widows. And so if Jesus is God, he loves everyone the ordinary, the lowest and the least. I think that's special enough, right? If the fact that God loves me makes me special. And so I think we're smuggling in maybe an idea of special that's more modern and Western thinking special means maybe like significant in terms of the values of our society or our modern day somehow like doing something big, right? Go big or go home. 
Whereas I'm not sure God has that same definition of special. And I'd want to say being known and loved by God is pretty darn special enough. And however my life turns out, that's more than enough for me. For yourself, you mentioned before we started recording that you were a Calvinist. Is this something that you were brought up in in faith or was it something that you came to discover for yourself? I grew up in a Korean Presbyterian tradition. So yeah, they're Calvinists, but I don't think I'm a Calvinist just because I grew up in that tradition. I thought through these things during my university years into my 20s and 30s. So I am what I am because I've thought through my position and the other positions. And this is the one I think corresponds most closely to the way that I read scripture and what I see there. For myself, I would say that I don't think I fully solidified my theology of fate versus free will until I was maybe 18, 19 or so. Before then, I'd grown up largely non-denominational didn't ascribe to any particular denomination within the Christian faith. Ironically enough, as much as I am very Pentecostal nowadays, back then I used to hate Pentecostal services with a a heated passion. I thought they were stupid and they were weird and loud. But I think in the middle of my journey from being affiliated with no one to being strongly affiliated with this particular denomination, When I was between 17 and 18, I had just moved back to Canada with my family. I was supposed to get enrolled back into high school for my final year. And I totally screwed that process up by making myself look like an idiot in front of the people who were responsible for enrolling me. I was forced to go and take a job working at a fast food restaurant while I was there. I met and fell in love with a girl who I wanted to get married to. She and I also happened to attend the same church. And so it felt like, okay, even though this avenue of where I was expecting my life to end up in, even though that's being shut off, it feels like there's a new avenue that I should be going and pursuing. And so I thought, I'll just go back to high school. I'll do it online. I'll get my diploma. I'll keep pursuing this girl that I love and I'll go to Bible college with her down in the States and we're going to get married and everything's going to be wonderful down the road. And it turned out that everything fell apart. She and I, after dating each other for a very brief period of time, she ended up dumping me partly because she didn't want to do a long distance relationship, partly because I think at the time I was just very immature I wasn't really ready to have a relationship myself, but also partly because she came from a Dutch Protestant reformed background and I wasn't Dutch Protestant reformed. And I just felt like extremely angry and betrayed at that kind of motivation. I ended up freaking out at a family member of hers, which in turn got me kicked out of my church. I was still trying to do schooling online. I was having trouble focusing on my studies I didn't have a good relationship with my family at the time to the point where it got to the point where my mom just, she sat me down and said, Nathan, we are going to be moving fairly soon. And as soon as we move, you are not coming with us because we don't want to have to put up with you anymore. You're going to have to find a place of your own to live. And you're just going to have to deal with the harsh reality of being an adult. 
And so in that moment, I, I kind of felt like I had just sunk so low that I didn't have anyone else I could turn to. I was a burden to my family. Whatever social life I had was effectively destroyed. I was working a job that I didn't like. I was trying to focus on schoolwork that I didn't feel particularly invested in anymore. And so it was all crashing down. And I thought the only logical solution was just to commit suicide, overdosing on prescription pills. Long story short, I somehow managed to survive that. And in the aftermath of that, I couldn't help but feel like God was saying to me, you're not going to die because I have a plan and a purpose for your life. And as long as you haven't fulfilled what I want you to do here on earth, then you're not going to die. And that was very difficult for me to accept at the time. But immediately after moving with the rest of my family to another city here in Edmonton, life got a whole lot better. I felt like the future became a lot more desirable. And while there have been ups and downs since then, I can't help but still cling to the fact that no matter what's going on, I still have a plan and a purpose on my life that's been given to me by God. And it's my duty to try and figure out what he wants me to do and to just pursue it wholeheartedly. And that is why I'm a Calvinist. Oh, yeah. So as you're speaking, I'm reminded of the other thoughts I had over the past couple of days around exactly that. I think as a Christian, we have something that others can't have. So as part of that book, that Viktor Frankl book, it was all about like knowing or figuring out what your purpose is. That's going to give you what you need to survive the concentration camp or survive whatever situation you're in. But the, the amazing thing that you and I have is we don't have to know what our purpose is, our ultimate purpose in the future. We know the one who has that purpose for us. All we have to do is trust him. We know him. We trust him. We know he's got a plan for us. And that's like another level of meaning that others don't have. And I was thinking about some of the best feelings I've ever had was like when I'm talking to somebody and in the moment I'm like, oh God, like, did you just plan for me to talk to this person? Are you using me right now to like communicate something with this particular person? And the feeling of being used by God, I don't think there's hardly anything that feels as good as that. Like to know that what I'm doing right now, whether it's a conversation with you or someone else, a stranger I had met, a family member is ordained, is purposed, and God is using me to do something in this other person's life. I don't think there's a bigger thrill than that. It makes all of life incredibly meaningful, and especially that moment. So that's what came to mind as you were speaking. Yeah, we don't need to know the, the specific purpose. And I'm sure there are, there's not one specific thing that you're meant to do. I'm sure there are hundreds or thousands of specific purposes that God has for each of our lives. But the fact that he knows it means I don't have to know it. And I can still have a meaningful life because I trust the one who is the author of my life. So that's the thought that came to mind as you were speaking. Yeah, I think we're different, though, in the sense that I have to have more of a solid understanding of where I need to go in terms of direction. Because once again, going back to why I thought it was a good idea to commit suicide, I genuinely thought that I was never going to finish high school. I was never going to be able to go to university. I was just going to be moving from dead-end job to dead-end job, struggling to live off of minimum wage. I wasn't really going to be able to go back to my church and rebuild the relationships that I had with the people I had become friends with there. In that case, like I needed some sort of assurance, hope, just something to look at in order to say, 
yes, that is where I need to align my life because at the time I just had nothing. And I think for myself, there were two things that happened in the aftermath of me trying to commit suicide. First of all, I knew that if I was still alive, when I had just spent so much time feeling the life sucked out of me, and I I was was still able to make it through that, I knew that in the absence of everything else, that there was some unknown purpose for me still being alive. And I couldn't conceive of it. I couldn't understand it. But I sort of just knew that it was there. It's sort of like, I think, the way that some people understand God, where they know that he exists because they exist, but they don't know what he's like because either they're not willing to trust the Bible or because they feel like, well, if he's not audibly speaking to me, then he probably doesn't exist. And so that's the first thing that gave me hope. And the second thing that gave me hope was that the week after I had attempted suicide, my grandfather was going on a road trip from Alberta into the next province over British Columbia so that he could take care of a rental property that he had. And my parents, they were going to church on that day. They didn't want me to be staying home alone by myself. But at the same time, they also didn't want to take me to church and have to deal with all of the social awkwardness that came with having someone like me there. So they just said, hey, Nathan, go with your grandfather on this road trip, and it should be a fun bonding experience for you. And I think going through the mountains of British Columbia and seeing the natural beauty that was on display and visiting what used to be my childhood home, it sort of brought back this wave of nostalgia of like, okay, not only do I feel like life is worth living right now, but I also know that I want to come back to this place somehow. And I don't know how I'm going to get here. I can't always rely on my grandfather for transportation, but one day I am going to get to a place where I am going to come back and I'm going to enjoy this. Cool. So is this conversation that we're having right now, is it preordained or is it just two random strangers coming together because of a podcast matching service? I think, yeah, both, both you and I believe it's preordained. I think, so going back to what you were talking about, as you were speaking, you mentioned Peter and Judas, I think before we started recording and how you and your roommate were talking about those two different responses to falling away, to sin. And as you were speaking about how you felt completely hopeless, that reminded me of Judas. It's like Judas also felt beyond forgiveness. He was hopeless and he killed himself. He judged himself and punished himself because he felt he was beyond forgiveness. He had done something so wrong. He damaged his life to such an extent that he was beyond redemption. So he took matters into his own hands and he committed suicide. So that's what came to mind as you were speaking about your mindset. Maybe that is the mindset of someone who is suicidal. They think they're beyond redemption or their lives are beyond redemption. There is no possibility of this life turning into something worthwhile in the future. And so why continue? Whereas I think Peter sinned as well. He betrayed Jesus. But Jesus reached out to him and Peter wept right out of guilt when he heard that that rooster crow, he cried because of, he felt guilty. He felt that. But then Jesus took steps to restore him and affirm him 
did Jesus even warn Peter before he fell away that like when you return, strengthen your brother, something like that? I think he may have even anticipated Peter would return and then prophesied to Peter saying, when you return, strengthen your brothers. I mean, I think one of the problems of Calvinism is if God is in control, if Jesus, if, if God is sovereign to that extent, to every detail, why does he intervene in some cases and not intervene in others? Why did he call Peter back? Why couldn't he have let Judas be redeemed? Why did he have to let Judas go and hang himself? Yeah, that's a hard question. I don't have an answer for that. But those hard questions you know, are real. They're there. But I think they're tempered by also the knowledge and truth of the character of God. So we know God is love. We know Jesus and his character based on the accounts of his life and the fact that he suffered and died for us so that those of us who receive that and receive that forgiveness can be with him forever. So yes, there are things we don't understand, but that doesn't mean there isn't a reason. And there isn't a morally, I think what William Lane Craig calls like a morally justified reason for the suffering and the evil that we don't understand. Yeah. I think I was mentioning earlier that I view life like a story and in particular, God is the author. And I mentioned earlier as well that I saw Judas and Peter as foils to each other. And a foil is a type of character who is meant to highlight good or bad traits in another character. Most immediate example that comes to mind outside of scripture would probably be Lord of the Rings that has plenty of really great foil characters. You have Frodo and Gollum contrasted by how they react when in possession and in the presence of the one ring of power. Frodo, he's spending the entire trilogy trying to resist the power of the ring and he's trying not to succumb to it. And Gollum, on the other hand, is completely enamored with it. He's addicted to it and it leads to his demise. You have Gandalf the Grey and Saruman the White, two very wise wizards. Saruman falls into despair and aligns with Sauron so that he can, I guess, in his own weird, twisted way, save Middle-earth, while Gandalf the Grey, when given the opportunity to follow Saruman's path, he actively rejects that choice. And in turn, he, he sort of takes over Saruman's role you have a character like King Theoden and uh, Denethor, the steward of Gondor, where both of them are dealing with their own psychological issues about the power they have and the family members they've lost. But while King Theoden is able to work through his issues and resolve them and to embrace his role as uh, king, mm. Denethor goes insane with grief and despair and ends up getting himself killed and so those kinds of characters where you have like these really tragic characters who make terrible choices that end up leading to their demise i think you see those reflected not just here on earth but also various other people in our own lives i know for myself there are plenty of people i know where I've been able to look at them and I've, I've, think, I've, I've thought to myself, wow, like if, if things were different for me in slightly different ways, then like I could have become like them. 
And on the other hand, there are also people in your life who are better than you, who you know are better than you, who you can look at and you can say to yourself, I'm not as good as them, but at the very least, I can try to be as good as them. Yeah. As you were speaking about foils, this passage came to mind and I can't quote it, but I think it's in Romans and it's about God can do whatever he wants. He can create vessels for mercy, to show mercy. And he can create vessels, or he's a potter. He can create vessels for other purposes. And so in that passage, he talks about some vessels being created to display his wrath. So he is an author. He's writing a story. I mean, he's the ultimate author. And the human history is the ultimate story. Not to say those characters destined for destruction are not guilty, and not responsible for their outcome, because we are. Each of us are responsible for our life decisions. But he's also the author of this story, this grand narrative. And if human beings can make a story like Lord of the Rings, almost a perfect story, and there are foils in that story, certainly the ultimate author is going to have foil characters in his story as well. That's what came to mind as you were speaking about foils. And I hadn't thought about Lord of the Rings in that detail, but you've definitely thought of it and analyzed it. And that's great. Yeah, the way you compared those characters. I haven't heard those comparisons before, but that's definitely right. So I think the issue that I keep running into when I try to explain to other people that God is like the author of a story is that in some ways it removes the agency that we have to make right and wrong decisions. And I think that for the longest time, I've stuck with this analogy because I couldn't think of a better one to come up with. And also because like, I feel like an author, if they choose to create characters who are evil, who deserve to be punished. And if, say, the villain gets away scot-free at the end of the story, we're still going to feel a sense of moral outrage, even though they had absolutely nothing to do with their choices. But I was able to have a conversation with a group of friends a couple of days ago about the nature of fate and free will. And as we were talking, I was likening my view of free will as to like a, an open world video game where we can choose to either follow the path, the storyline that has been set before us in order to experience the emotional highs and lows of the story that we experience, or we can just sit around and we can do nothing. We can play around the world and not really push things forward. And as I was expressing that analogy, another analogy came to mind, one that allows for a little more free will between us and God in the sense that throughout scripture in parables that Jesus teaches he often uses the analogy of servants and masters Mm -hmm. and how he's sort of like the master of the house and we're his servants. And if I were to take that analogy and put it into something that is of another medium, it's almost like we're television actors Mm -hmm. and God is like the showrunner of our TV show. And like, we have a script that we need to fulfill and perform. And if we don't fulfill and perform it, then we get fired and kicked off the show and get killed off in numerous gruesome ways. And if the head writer is exceptionally talented, then they'll work it into the story and make it appear as natural as possible. Or we can choose to play our parts till the very end 
and not have to create so much difficulty for uh, those working with us and also those who, who are going to be impacted by the story. Yeah, no, I like those analogies. They are analogies. If you push any analogy too far, it breaks down. But I like it. I like that. Uh, a thought that came to mind was, I think God created reality in such a way that there is a moral grain to it, like as well as you know, the physical, natural laws of nature. We have the laws of gravity and all these descriptions of the way physical reality behaves. There's also a moral grain to reality. And so I think in that way, when people violate the moral law, there are consequences. Whether it's the law of the land or not, if you live your life violating the moral grain of reality of the universe, you're going to get pushback and you're not going to have as successful or as fulfilled a life as you could if you were following the moral grain of the universe. So that's just another analogy or thought in my head about how God could be and is guiding the trajectory of history of his creation while still giving people the freedom to make genuine decisions. Yeah. One more question I want to ask before we wrap things up with AI becoming more sophisticated each and every year and with a lot of push from governments and tech companies to become more reliant on AI in order to make important decisions. Do you think that we are in a sense in danger of losing that aspect of free will that we possess if our lives are going to be controlled and moderated by computer software programs? No, I don't think, I don't think we're in any danger of losing our free will. I think that's just innate to us. We make free decisions. We'll always be able to make free decisions. I thought you were going with that question. Will AI ever wake up and be conscious? I don't think that will happen because I think our consciousness and our freedom is tied to our being made in the image of God and there's something immaterial about us, call it a soul, call it a spirit or a mind, that is enabling our free will. The ability to pretty much not break the laws of physics, not break the laws of nature, but we are indeterministic. Everything else in nature is deterministic, determined by the laws of physics and chemistry. But the fact that we make genuine decisions free will decisions means we're not being determined by the laws of cause and effect. We're operating on a different plane from just the physical deterministic plane. Yeah, so that's why I don't think AI, which is a machine, computers all governed by electrons and protons and all that, that there is a possibility of that somehow waking up and becoming self-aware and making free decisions. Okay. So what happens when the singularity does come around? <laughs> I don't think it will come around. If it does come around, then we'll have to reassess our assumptions and think, okay, well, how did that happen? And we'll, I guess I'll think about it then. But I don't think it can happen. I don't think it's feasible. Yeah, I could be wrong. I think maybe another point is there are so many parts of reality that are paradoxical, but are still true. Like, I think the older I get, the more I see that like our capacity to comprehend is quite limited. Like not just our senses, our senses are also very limited. We can only perceive a, a very narrow range of all the possible aspects of reality. Like our eyes can only see a very narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Ears, we only hear a narrow band of the, the frequency of sound waves. So like our brains are limited in what we can comprehend. And so 
our understanding of reality is constructed so that we can access it. And so things like, and I believe fate and free will, I think the reality is they hold together in a cohesive and comprehensive way, in a very simple way. But this is just one example of those things that we're not able to comprehend in its the way it really is. And so we've broken it apart and we've conceptualized it as fate and free will or maybe light as particle wave. We smash that together and say, oh, it's the particle wave theory of light, right? So the reality is simple and comprehensive and cohesive, but our ability to comprehend it is limited. So the human mind is going to break things up into categories just so we can access it to the best that we can. And so it doesn't scare me that I can't or human beings can't reconcile fate and free will. To me, that's not an argument that it's not true, that they are reconcilable, if that makes sense. Are you saying that you don't think about it or is it just like... Just because I can't reconcile, just because we, maybe human beings, can't reconcile fate and free will doesn't mean that's not the case. It doesn't mean that they are not reconcilable. Just like human beings can't conceptualize light as both a particle and a wave, doesn't mean, well, the fact is, it, light is something like both of those concepts. We just can't, at this point, conceptualize or grasp it. All right, fair enough. I think we're running out of time at the moment. I do know that we booked off a, a very limited amount of time in comparison to other guests that I usually bring on to the show. Before we go, is there anything else that you want to say? And in particular, for any other podcasters who might be listening to this episode, what's the name of your business? Our website is called custommobile.app. So any other podcast can find me there. And we make branded mobile apps for content creators so that they can have their listeners downloaded and they can own that relationship with their audience and ultimately monetize that audience turn their hobbies into businesses. But I want to thank you for this time, this conversation, Nathan. It was great. I really enjoy having discussions like this. I don't have enough of them. So I thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and share parts of our stories and how we've intersected today for a brief amount of time. Yes. Anyways, thank you and see you guys later. Thanks, Nathan. Take care. Bye. Bye. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray with special guest, John Lee. Thank you to Podmatch for allowing us the opportunity to meet and record this conversation. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.